Oftentimes, when it comes to uh, getting a job, you really want to know two things. How much and what will it cost me, right? I mean, in other words, is the risk worth the reward for the job? Is the sacrifice worth the silver? Now listen, becoming a Christian is like that. You say, what do you mean? Well, sometimes we talk about becoming a Christian that way. There's a great cost. There's great sacrifice. I believe that part of the gospel message is often missing. The cost and the sacrifice to follow Christ. In Luke 9, he told them, the one guy who came and said, I will follow you wherever you go. And he said, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And he turned that guy away because he was unwilling to count the cost. Later on in that same passage in Luke 9, he then went to another one and said, follow me. And he said, first, let me bury my father. His father wasn't even dead yet. In other words, I I need to see how it works out with my inheritance. I need to see, I need to make sure of things. I need to kind of, you know, listen, Jesus said, he, he passed that guy up. Because the guy didn't understand that it will, it, it, there's a cost to becoming a Christian. I believe that part of the gospel message is often missing, but not with Jesus. He said, whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Mark 8.35 Matthew 10, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He said in Luke 14, becoming a Christian is like building a tower or going out to meet another king in battle. How so? Consider the cost before you go in both. Why? Because it will cost you everything. He says, calculate, add it up, count the costs. Oftentimes we don't include that in the, in our gospel proclamation. What Jesus was saying is there is a cost in becoming a Christian and that cost is your whole life. The rich young ruler couldn't give it all up, but that was the demand. Everything. You say, so becoming a Christian is giving up all your money? No, for that guy, it was because he loved money so much. In other words, are you willing to give up the thing that you love so much? To follow Christ, to have Christ. So sometimes we talk about becoming a Christian in that term, in that way, cost, surrender, what you lose. Philippians 3, Paul said, I count it all, what? Loss. Remember the disciples to Jesus, Lord, we have given up everything to follow you. But salvation isn't just what you pay out. Listen, it's also what you get. There's another way to talk about salvation. Yes, it'll cost you everything, but here's the deal. There's payment on the other side. There's reward. There's blessing. There's what we have been calling pieces of God's goodness. And so one talks about what we give up. The other talks about what we get. And both sides are part of the gospel. In fact, we were just in John 4 this last week in our flock groups, in our flock study. And when Jesus was talking to that woman at the well, he wasn't just saying, give up the the guy that you're with. 
give up the immoral relationship. He was telling her to get what? The living water. Because there's living water. In other words, what you're going to get out of this is way greater than what you're losing, than what you're giving up. And I think until you're convinced of that, you probably don't give up what the gospel is calling you to give up. Now we're studying First Peter, and he has been talking a lot about the cost of becoming a Christian throughout these first two chapters. Who can forget the holiness that he talked about in chapter 1? But in our section, it's the other side. Salvation isn't just surrender and sacrifice. It is treasure and gifts and blessing and goodness and reward. What it pays, not just what it costs. And I like that. So in a sense, we're up to a section in Scripture where we're talking about the payout. We're talking about dividends. F.B. Meyer said, learn to put your hand on all spiritual blessings in Christ and say, mine. That's what Peter's talking about. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, shame on us for being paupers when we were meant to be princes. Now, I say that because that is 1 Peter 2. 4 through 10. So if you have your Bibles, please make sure they're open to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. So allow me to read it, and then I want to go back in and, and make some comments on it. Verse 4, And coming to him as to a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value then is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they're disobedient to the word. And to this doom, they were also appointed. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We're talking about here in this section about the spiritual advantage that a person has when he or she becomes a Christian. There's great spiritual wealth here. There's great spiritual wealth in what you receive in your salvation. Great spiritual blessing, riches, or what we're calling spiritual privilege. Listen to how Paul puts it in Romans 9, verse 23. God endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand for glory. He says to make known the riches of his glory. I think we value this earth to a degree so much that we've allowed it to cheapen words like this. The riches of His glory. You can have all the wealth that the world is able to produce and not understand the riches of His glory. That 
That's what God saves us for. The riches of his glory. It's incredible. After 11 chapters describing our salvation, Paul says in Romans 11:33, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. The depth of his riches. That's what he gives us as salvation. God has made it so that our pockets are deep. Because his pockets are deep. The whole epistle of the Colossians is about riches. It's an epistle of riches. The gospel has come to you and constantly bears fruit and is increasing since the day you believe. Chapter 1, verse 6 to 7. Same thing in chapter 1, verse 10. Chapter 1, verse 27. To whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery. What mystery? Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you brings riches. Chapter 2, verse 2, having been knit together in love and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding. Why do you have to use words like wealth when we're talking about Christ and understanding? He says, when you understand what you have in salvation, it's like attaining to all the wealth. That tells me I need to work more at trying to understand, well, what do I really have then in this salvation? If that's where all the wealth is, then I need to start understanding that. Chapter 2, verse 3, after saying Christ in you, he says, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. When the Lord saves a person, he puts Fort Knox in them. I didn't realize I had all that in me, right? Whoa! All the treasures. Chapter 2, verse 10 says, you've been made complete, and that means, he says, you lack nothing. Imagine being able to say that. You know, and I've heard this recently, this last year, you hear people say all the time, well, you know, when I get rich, when I stru- struck it, when I strike it big, you know, when I finally get that lottery ticket, it's, it's, it means something. I'm going to do this and buy that and go to this place and so forth. You know what the Christian can say? I'm already there. I am already there. You know what? You might or might not win in that lottery, but I'm already there. I'm already there. I have it all, you see. I mean, there is nothing that a piece, like a dollar bill or anything that some lottery ticket can give me that I don't already have. All wealth, see. Colossians 3, verse 23 to 24, he says, Work hard, knowing from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. Oh, boy. What inheritance? What inheritance? Well, whatever the Lord owns is yours, see? Whatever the Lord owns is yours. Same thing in Ephesians 1 8, Ephesians 2 7, Ephesians 3 8, Ephesians 3 16. You get the idea that Paul likes to talk about how rich we are. He does. What we have in Christ, blessings, privileges, pieces of God's goodness, riches, all saying the same thing, all speaking about the spiritual advantage that we have. What we have in Christ, you have him and you have everything. All right. So sometimes we talk like Dietrich Bonhoeffer about the cost of becoming a Christian, and then sometimes we talk about what we get in becoming a Christian. Peter, in our section, is talking about what we get, right? Peter says, I just can't help it, guys. You need to know all the pieces of goodness and riches that we have in our salvation. These are 
spiritual privileges. And we've told you that there are ten of them here that he, that he speaks of. Now look at verse 4 again. He says, And coming to him as to a living stone which has been rejected by men. He's a living stone. Jesus Christ is alive. We've come to him to receive salvation, to receive him. In fact, when you receive salvation, you receive him. He is our salvation. It says coming to him. Peter takes our salvation in Christ like a diamond and places it on the velvet backdrop of life and then turns that diamond over to each facet so we can see what we have in there. And each piece of spiritual wealth is filled with brilliance. Ten of them. The first one is union with Christ. Verse 5, he says, You also, as a living stone are... Excuse me, as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house. You also. And I like that. You also. Because what he is saying is, whatever Christ is and has, so do you. Whoa. You also. If he's a living stone, you're a living stone. And that speaks of union. The union that we have with Christ. Sharing the same nature, Second Peter 1.4. And then you have the second piece of goodness or privilege. Access to God, verse 5. For a holy priesthood that makes spiritual sacrifices to God. And there we talked about how we're priests. And we went over that in the last two weeks. And that gives us access to God. Third, security in Christ. Verse 6. The fact that we are priests means we have been given access to God. Only priests had that. And when we come into his presence, we will never be disappointed. We'll never be turned away. We will never die. Back in the Old Testament, you came into his presence and you died. And he says now you'll never die. Isn't that good? Peter quotes Isaiah 28.16, Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. You'll never be ashamed. You'll never fail. Now listen, you will never fail because he will never fail us. You'll never be put out. Because of him. And then there's a fourth privilege. And we call that one affection for Christ. Love for him. He changes our hearts so that we love him now. That's a mark of a Christian. Love for Christ. Listen, you can do things for Jesus, but that doesn't mean you love him. James 4, some do it with evil motives. Now the key thought for this point is there in verse 7. Take a look at it. This precious value then is for you who believe. And you remember we said a better way to translate that, to give the sense of what Peter is saying, is this. To you who believe, he is precious value. To you who believe, he is precious value. He is treasure. He is priceless. He is the greatest. He is the object of your deepest love. Now listen, that is not true for the unbeliever. Let me take you to something here. We're picking this back up, and I'm going to give you some stuff that I didn't give you last time. How can you spot an unbeliever? Three ways. Look at verses 7 and 8, and I'll give you those three ways. But for those who disbelieve, the stone which the believers, excuse me, the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumbled because they are disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were 
also appointed. Three ways to spot an unbeliever. First, disbelief. Disbelief. An unbeliever really, they don't really believe God. Okay? They don't really believe Him. Or they might say they do, but notice, what do they stumble over? Christ. Christ. Oh, they want you to talk about God. It's okay. The unbeliever is okay with you talking about God because they might say to you, well, everybody has their own God. I mean, that's just basic to humanity. We just talk about God. But they stumble over Christ. Christ alone. That Jesus is the only way to God. That's the stumble. And so the first way to spot an unbeliever is disbelief. Second, disobedience. Notice he says they don't obey God's word. God's word and obedience is no big deal to them. It's just guidance. It's just suggestion. It's just kind of a, you know, opinion. It's just, hey, look, if that works for you, that's fine. But I'm going to live my life the way I live it over here. You're just telling me that because that's just God talking. Okay. But to them, disobeying God, disobeying His Word, it's not that big of a deal. And the more you make it a big deal, Christian the more rigid you appear to them, the more you appear like what they would call a legalist. The more you are narrow-minded to them. How do you spot an unbeliever? Disbelief, disobedience. Third, distaste. Distaste. You know, the unbeliever, they might have knowledge, but they don't obey it. But then you get to this third one, and I think you get to the core heart of it all. Distaste. There's no taste for Christ. He is not precious to them. No affection. No warmth. No desire for Christ. But you know, he's precious to us believers. Look at verse 7. But, there's an important word, but, contrast, but for those who disbelieve, for non-Christians, He's not precious value. What happens if you think you are okay, but these things describe you? Verse 8. To this doom, they were also appointed. Doom. Judgment. You make your appointment for hell. In Ephesians 6.24 it says, Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with incorruptible love. Literally with unstained love. But 1 Corinthians 16.22 says, If anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed. Love for Christ, you get grace. No love for Christ, you get cursed. That's what the Bible says. And it's that simple. How do we know that person is an unbeliever? He has rejected Christ. How can you tell that he's rejected Christ? Disbelief, disobedience, and a distaste for Christ. No love for him. 
Love for Jesus makes you want to obey Jesus. Obeying Jesus happens because you believe Jesus. You trust him. And so again, you're kind of just in this unbelievable circle band of of God's salvation that he gives you where there's love and obedience and trust and belief. All right, there's a fifth spiritual privilege or peace of God's goodness to all who have come to Christ. Number five, chosen by God. Chosen by God. The fifth privilege is to be chosen by God. You see, I thought we already talked about election back in chapter one. We did. You say, so why bring it up again? Well, let's find out. Look at verse nine. But you are a chosen race. Now, Peter likes to quote the Old Testament. And that's what this is. More Old Testament. He quoted Isaiah 28, 16. He's quoted Psalm 118, verse 22. He's quoted Isaiah 8, 14. In other words, these thoughts I'm giving you, Peter says, hey, they're right from the Old Testament. In other words, I'm, I'm, not, I'm, I'm not giving you anything new. I'm just showing you how all of this from the Old Testament connects to Christ. And what we have are some really short statements here in verses 9, basically verse 9, four descriptions of believers. But we're going to find a little more than that here too as we dig. So we're going to do that. Now, the emphasis is on the first two words in the Greek, but you. They're very strong in the Greek. And what he gives is a contrast. The Bible likes contrast. You know, put, you put the unbeliever on one side and you put the believer on the other side and you say, all right, black, white, you know, darkness, light, Right? You see that all throughout Scripture. That's what you have here. So that's what the but is there. Contrast. He wants us to see the differences, very to see them clearly. But you, Christian, are not like what we just said about the unbeliever. You are chosen by God. You are a chosen race. And he's talking about believers here. Not just a single believer, but believers. And so the focus, where earlier in chapter 1, it was more focused at the, at the individual level. Here, it's more at a collective level. And I like that. Because he didn't just choose me individually. He chose me to be corporately connected to you. This is a similar thing in First Corinthians 11. Excuse me, 12. First Corinthians 12. You're chosen by God, a chosen race. Now, what does that mean, chosen race? Uh, the word race here is genos in the Greek, G-E-N-O-S. Uh, it, it means race. Uh, it's where we get genetics from or genealogy from, which speaks of source. And in this case, I believe life source, a chosen race coming from this special life source God, an elect race produced by God. I like that. I like, I like, talk, I like uh, him talking about the church, talking about Christianity in that way. A lot of times, you know, you do little DNA tests, right? So, oh, I wonder what's back there. I wonder what's in all that deal here. So you kind of see, see, they say, oh, man, I always thought I was Italian. I realize I'm Swedish or something like that. I don't know, you know. I mean, they, you, 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 does that happen to you? Have you ever done that test? And you kind of get alarmed and think, uh-oh. Guess i got to start saying, I don't know, maybe I'm going to start filling out my, uh, 
you know, if you go to college, you fill that out there. Hey, what's going to get me the most money here? I know, that's what you always do. They're giving it out, I'm taking it, right? Well, as Christians, we're a race. And it's kind of neat to know, it's like, man, we're, we're connected all the way back to the first Christians. First believers. An elect race produced by God. You say, I thought Peter's quoting the Old Testament. Where's the text for the Old Testament here? Ah, well, you've got to go back to Deuteronomy 7 to see it. So why don't you do that? Turn back to Deuteronomy 7. And I want to show you what Peter has in mind when he says, you are a chosen race. Now there's actually a couple of Old Testament texts that I believe are on his mind. The Lord through Moses is talking to Israel and verse 6 says, "You, for you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Now that's fascinating to me. You have all these people groups on the face of the earth, all these peoples, and the Lord chooses Israel or chooses this group of people and calls this group of people Israel. Now why did he do that? Is it because they were so smart? Well, I mean, after all, they made a golden calf. It only took about five minutes for Moses to be away from them before they did it. And they worshipped it. That doesn't sound real smart. Were they hardworking? Is it because they're such hardworking people? Is it because they're so faithful? Or maybe it's because they're so morally excellent. No. Verse 7. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. All right, you were not too impressive. You were not very successful in making yourself a, you know, a big number. So why did God choose Israel? Verse 8. But because the Lord loved you, and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out from Egypt. Verse 9, Know therefore that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God, who keeps his covenant and his loving kindness to a thousandth generation with those who love him and keep his commandments. Does that sound familiar? What Peter is saying is, that the Lord sees this collection of believers that are the church, the believers that make up the church in a similar way as Israel of the Old Testament. Chosen by God for purpose. A collection of all those that love him. And he says the reason why he did it that way is because he loved her. Why? Because he wanted to. He said, why did he want to? He doesn't tell us that. He just said he wanted to. Just because. And I know that's not the best parenting. Sometimes the best parenting way to tell your children, hey, do this because. Why? Because. Right? But in this case, it is. Just because. There's a second Old Testament text Peter probably has in mind. Isaiah chapter 43, verse 20 and 21. This is why we had this read to you earlier. I have given waters in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. Isaiah 43, verse 20. To give drink to my chosen people 
He says, hey, I'm committed to taking care of these, my people. Because they're my chosen people. The people whom I formed for myself will declare my praise. Whew. I mean, God chose them, he formed them, and he did it with purpose. See, what's the purpose? He tells us to declare his praise. You know what that is? Love. We're back to love again. Affection. Chosen by God to show affection to him. By the way, Ephesians 1 connects election to that very thing. Not just his love for us, but creating our love for him. Because we wouldn't. We love things too much. We wouldn't love him with all our heart unless God did that. First John. He first loved us, right? You know why he has to say it that way? So that we understand. We only love out of a reaction to what? His love for us. Now we already know that Peter has a lot to say about God's chosen, the elect. Right from the beginning of this letter, chapter 1, verses 1 through 2, it's all about God choosing to save some. Sovereign election. And we saw that and we learned about it. Look look at it again, though. Uh, to those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. So believers are chosen. And then chapter 2 verse 9 says, chosen by God to be a chosen race into a group. Now why repeat it? See, you already said this. Why repeat it? Well, think about it from a parenting side. Why do you, parents, repeat things to your kids? It is not because they're, you know, that they've got a problem with it. They take that hearing test, you know, they're at school, right, where they, at least they used to, I don't know if they still do that, right? They put the little headphones on you and make sure you can hear all the sounds and all that kind of stuff. And then, of course, the, the truth comes out. Oh, your kids can really hear. So why don't they listen whenever I talk, right? You, why do parents repeat things to your kids? Because whatever you're telling them, it's important, and you don't want them to forget, right? Sometimes you hear Christians say, well, how important is election anyway? I mean, does it even matter for us to be talking about this? Well, ask yourself this question. Well, why is the Lord repeating it? You think it's important to him? It seems like it is. I mean, we're not even two, past two chapters. And, it, and by the way, it's not like this is an obscure doctrine tucked away in a corner where you barely see it in the Bible. I want to remind you of some of the passages. And I'm telling you, I am just giving you a super thumbnail on this. Start with Jesus, John chapter 6, verse 70. Did I myself not choose you, he said? He said that to the disciples. Skip to John fifteen sixteen. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you. Acts thirteen forty eight. And as many as have been appointed to eternal life, believed. All of that is God choosing his saved ones. Romans chapter 9 verse 11. So that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Verse 14. Is there injustice with God? May it never be. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. Verse 16. So it does not depend on the man who wills or runs, but on God who has mercy. In other words, it depends on God who chooses. And here you and I are thinking that we're better than God, saying, well, maybe he should have chose that person and not that person. 
he goes on to say in Romans 9, Who are you, O man? Who do you think you are? Will the clay call back to the potter? Hey, why'd you make me like this? Can't do that. So clear. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9. God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with His Son. Ephesians 1.11, predestined according to His purpose. Well, I don't know, but that sounds strongly clear. God chooses. Colossians 3.12, as those who have been chosen. 1 Thessalonians 1.4, knowing, brethren, beloved by God, His choice of you. Say, well, maybe he just maybe he means just that God chose them because they chose him. Second Thessalonians two thirteen, we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation. By the Spirit, through faith, in the truth. It's what he says. Listen, it's not even your faith. He gave it to you. Over and over and over. Second Timothy one nine, Second Timothy two ten, Titus one verses one through two, even James two five. You say, okay, well what about Revelation? Okay? Revelation thirteen eight. All who dwell on the earth will worship him, and it's talking about the beast to come. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of the life of the Lamb who has been slain. There's a book. Names written. When did he write them? Before the foundation of the world. That's before he made it. By the way, that should make you Say, whoa. Or, yeah, cool. Something like that. It's amazing. Your name written? Yours? In a book? Before he created the world? Why did he do it this way? Same as in Deuteronomy 7. Because he wanted to demonstrate his free love to make a people that would love Christ from the heart. Sometimes you hear people say, but Peter says it is according to foreknowledge. So doesn't that mean that God chose you because he looked down the road and saw that you would choose him? I mean, think about how silly that that, that would be. Um, he also looked down, would look down the road and see how bad you are. Which one is he going to go with, right? That's not what foreknowledge means, by the way. You know that word foreknowledge? You could call the word foreknowledge deliberate knowledge. I think that would be a great way to understand what the word actually means. Deliberate knowledge. Purposeful knowledge. In other words, God made a plan that had knowledge, and he had that knowledge as a plan, and then he chose you based on it. Do you understand that? He made a plan. He had that knowledge as a plan, free from anything but himself, and then he chose you on the basis of that. And so God choosing us for salvation cannot be based on him looking down the road to see who would choose him You know what? If that was how it was based, then salvation, or that is election, would make our wills more sovereign than his will. And by the way, we just got done studying John. Doesn't it say in John 1.13, not by the will of man, but by the will of God? It says that. Hey, I didn't say that. He did. We just read it. We're just reading it. Peter actually helps us understand election and foreknowledge right here in this letter. Look back at chapter 1, verse 2. Chosen by foreknowledge. 
Then look at chapter 1, verse 20. Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world. Same word. Same word. One applied to us, the other to Jesus. In other words, the same way God the Father foreknew Jesus is the same foreknowledge he used for every Christian. And how about this one, chapter 2, verse 4? Jesus' choice in the sight of God. God the Father chose Jesus for what? To be our Redeemer. Chapter 2, verse 6, a choice stone, a living stone, and that means resurrection. So to be our Redeemer that would die and be raised. And then in chapter 2, verse 9, every believer is chosen. Chosen in the same way Jesus was chosen. We would never say that God looked down the road and saw what a great Messiah Jesus would make and then he chose him, right? So that's not what foreknowledge means. It just means deliberate knowledge for a plan. You say, but how is the truth that Christians are chosen by God a spiritual privilege, a piece of God's goodness to us as a blessing? Well, let me give you five ways God's election is a privilege to you. Let's start with the first one. First, election crushes your biggest enemy. Pride. Pride. It is your biggest enemy. Pride gets in the way. Pride is called the crime of the devil. Do you struggle with pride? Oh boy, you do. Proverbs 3, do not be wise in your own eyes. Proverbs 14, there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads only to what? Death. The truth that God chose you and not the other way around just crushes your pride. And that's good. You have nothing to do with your salvation with coming to Christ. 1 Peter 2, 4, and coming to Christ. How he chose you. Second, God's election for salvation is a privilege because it produces your greatest need. What's your greatest need? Humble God exaltation. Or you can say this, humility that manifests in God exaltation. Humility that manifests in, in God exaltation. Your greatest need is to exalt God. You don't exalt God because of, of the pride that is there that wants to exalt yourself. Once the pride is crushed, then you can get in touch with your greatest need, which is to give God much praise, that is to make much of God and little of you. Boy, do we spend so much time trying to get credit for things and make much of our own name. What a waste of time and unproductive energy. All of God, all for God. Third, it's a privilege because it promotes your best motive. What is your best motive? He's already told us in this letter. Holiness. That is the best motive. Holy love, holy obedience, holy joy. Holy unity. It's your best motive. See, what do you mean by that? The desire to be like Christ. Christ is holy. So whenever your motive is to be like Christ, it's your best motive. That's why in Ephesians 1, by the way, Paul connects election to holiness. Read it for yourself. Read it for yourself. You'll see it. Chosen by Him, and that makes us want to be like Him. Fourth, it's a privilege because it prepares your most needed strength. What's your most needed strength? Peace. 
You know, life gets turbulent. But for you, because you understand that God has sovereignly chosen you, you can face whatever that challenge is with peace. Peace. I mean, if God can sovereignly choose me before he made the world, he can handle whatever the difficulty is, right? And then, fifth way, election is a privilege. It is a privilege because it connects you to your deepest response to life. What is your deepest response to life? Joy. Hey, he chose you. Doesn't that make you want to be thankful? Doesn't that make you want to sing? To have joy in all circumstances? I mean, there's hope for the sinner when you realize you don't deserve his grace and you have it. Well, I want to close this morning. Let's see a sixth spiritual privilege. A sixth piece of God's goodness. Number six, reigning with Christ. Reigning with Christ. I'm not sure why the notes say for Christ. That's my fault. I think I I sent uh, Shannon the wrong stuff there. It should say reigning with Christ. Now, Peter stays with the Old Testament here. He says, but you are a royal priesthood. You say, well, we've made that point already, didn't we? I mean, back in verse 5, we have a priesthood, right? Well, we sort of made that point. Let me help you with this here, because this is a little different emphasis. Verse 9, a royal priesthood. Two nouns, and some see them separate. Some say, well, maybe he's saying he's made you a king and he's made you a priesthood. It could say that, but because of how each description is put in the exact same way, that would make this one different. Most commentators say the best way is to look at the word royal as an adjective attached to the noun. Royal priesthood. Now, what does it mean? I believe the idea when you put them both together is dominion or a reigning to rule. Ruling with Christ. That's the idea, reigning with Christ. Now, let me show you a little. And I say just a little because we can go a a long ways with this. But I just want to give you this. This is so good. This little snapshot here. Now, the biggest, the big surprise would be combining both things. King and priest. Kings in the Old Testament were not priests. Priests in the Old Testament were not kings. They're separate. It's a separate deal. There were a few times, you remember like Saul and Uzziah, we already talked about that, where they tried to do priestly work. And they were wrong in doing that. And the Lord judged them for it. But watch this. The thing that helps us is the Old Testament connection again. He's connecting this to Exodus chapter 19, verse 6. This is Israel at Mount Sinai to meet with Moses, who was meeting with God at the mountain. Exodus 19.6, And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And then the Lord said this, These are the words you shall speak to the sons of Israel. Now the original plan for Israel was to be that, a kingdom of priests. In other words, what people were to see when they saw Israel was the, this giant priesthood, you know, that helped them understand how to get to God. A kingdom of that. And the sad reality is she never was that. Never. She never experienced that. Why? Because she sinned. In fact, she said constantly, constantly, you know, she was always giving up her privileges. I mean, the idea was a priest 
to offer sacrifices in a kingdom, to rule, to have dominion, to reign. And you get to the New Testament with Jesus and the Israelites. What happens to the Israelites? The Israelites become apostate. See, what does it mean to be apostate? An apostate is those, apostates are those that should believe the truth, that know the truth, that say they believe the truth at one time, but they're rejected. Israel did that. First Peter 2, they were the builders who rejected Christ and Messiah. And so Jesus offers the spiritual side of the kingdom to all who will receive it, including Gentiles, okay? And someday he's going to make the spiritual kingdom come alive in a physical way. All right? Now, hang on there with me. So Israel rejected the kingdom, and now you have believers called the church that has embraced it. We're not just priests. We are royal priests. So what does it mean to be a royal priesthood? It could mean a few things. It could mean that we have a service to the king called Jesus. But I think it means the second thing. It means when we are a priest, we are a priest that reign with Christ. See, where do you get this idea? Let me show you. There is a future aspect to this. And there is a present one that is so important. Turn to 1 Corinthians 6 to see this as we bring this to a head. This word, as you're going there, let me give you some thoughts here. The word for uh, royal can be translated palace or royal place. And I believe Peter uses this word to talk about a royal sphere, a reigning sphere. And the second word is not just priest, but priesthood. And so the reigning sphere of the priesthood would be the better way to look at this. A royal house of priests. The reigning sphere for God's people known as priests. Now it's a really unique thing. There's, there's only one person who can make a priesthood like this. Only one person who can make a house that combines priests and king. Hebrews 7. Now all the priests and kings of the Old Testament were really just pointing to the true priest and true king. I'm going to get to that First Corinthians 6 passage in a moment, but listen. Verse 14. For it is evident that our, Hebrews 7.14 that our Lord was descended from Judah a tribe with reference to which Moses spoke nothing concerning priests. So here you have Jesus is descended out of Judah. But he's also our priest, right? High priest. How? He's not, he's not from the tribe of Levi. The tribe of Levi had the priest. Judah, no priest. How does that work? Jesus wasn't supposed to serve as a priest. Except, verse 15, and this is clearer still, that if another priest arises according to the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become such not on the basis of a law, a physical requirement, but according to the power of an indestructible life, a sinless life. Now, he said that because if you read Genesis 14, we don't know the beginning nor end of Melchizedek's life. And so he uses that to be a statement about Jesus. That's not saying that Melchizedek himself was, you know, some deity. It's just saying it becomes a picture. Psalm 110, Jesus was a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. So Jesus could be a priest and we could know, and we, all, we already know he's a true king. So we have the true king who is the true priest how do we know he was a priest? Because he offered his blood as sacrifice to take away sin. Why does he need to be king so that he could reign over all? And he is uniquely both. And because we are linked with Christ in union, that means that we are both priests and kings that reign. 
How? In the future. And listen, in the present. So now I can show you the future. Look at 1 Corinthians 6 1. Does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? You say, why say that? Well, there were Christians suing Christians. And he says, that's not right. When a Christian sues a Christian, you're off. You don't understand Christianity. You're not understanding what it is to be a brother and sister in the Lord to the, to the other person. Verse 2. Why? Why say that? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Future tense, will, in the future. If the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Do you not know that we believers will judge angels? How much more matters of this life? What is he saying? Let me see if I can boil it down. Our future kingdom experience is going to be this, ruling with Christ over the earth, even over angels. Revelation 20, you can see that. So why seek the wisdom of unbelievers when our future is to judge others? You say judge? Yes. On what basis? Because we will be filled with the perfect knowledge that belongs to Christ, 1 Corinthians 13. We'll be able to draw the straight line in life because we will be reigning with Christ. And whenever we use his word to judge here on this earth, we practice that for the future. So what he is saying is, how can two people who have the word of God and who have Christ and who someday are going to be reigning with Christ and applying his word, how can they go and sue each other? It makes no sense. He said, that's the future, but what about now? Turn to Romans 6 as we close. Here's our closing. This is how we reign with Christ right now until he comes back. Verse 11. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's salvation. Positional truth. Dead to sin. He forgave it all. Alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's the new life of the Spirit. Verse 12. Therefore, do not let sin, what? Reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust. Don't let it reign. Don't let it act as a sovereign. Why? Because you, Christian, are reigning with Christ. What is your reign right now? (laughs) You. It's a reign over you. Do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust. We reign with Christ when we turn away from sin, from trying to rule our mortal bodies, our flesh, this body of ours. That's our present sphere of reign. Power to rule this body. Verse 13, to present the members of our body not to sin, but to God as instruments of righteousness. There's another way that we reign with Christ right now, 1 Corinthians 5. Remember, there was a man that was sleeping with his dad's wife, and this would be this man's stepmom. And Paul says, remove that man from among you, that wicked man, and that's church discipline. He said, a little, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. You let a little sin go unchecked, and it ruins the whole batch. And he's just talking about policing our church, keeping it pure and clean. In verse 12, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those within the church? Do you know what our reign is? It is a reign over ourselves, and it is a reigning with Christ over this whole church, helping each other deal with our sin. His point is this. We have a reigning sphere where we are judges. First, 
judges of yourselves, then of each other. Notice he says, not of the world. We don't judge the world. God, that's God's area. What's the point, Jesus? First yourselves, then the church, to be able to stay pure and clean and following our Lord Jesus. The point is, there's no one over you but the Lord. We have reigned with Christ. In the future, yes, in a real physical way, but for now too. How? Yourself and then one another. That's the royal priesthood. Serve others by pointing them to the king. I come to you by the authority of Jesus Christ to follow him. See, that's all you do. It's not me. I don't have any, I don't have powerful words, but he does. It is a priesthood greater than the Levitical one, greater than the one from Aaron. You see all those privileges you have as a Christian? How should you respond? You should be thankful. But you should praise God for it all, right? Let's do that. Dear Father, we thank you for all the privileges we have in Jesus Christ. What a sphere that we have to live in. Help us to apply. Please show us, Lord, areas where we can grow in to be more of the believers that take advantage of the spiritual advantages we have in you. We love you and pray for this in Jesus' name.